session, which will commence once uh, Jeff has finished his reading. Um, due to time constraints, we may not get to every question, but we will certainly do our best. Now tonight, as I mentioned, Jacob and I are thrilled to have New York Times bestselling author Jeff Vandermeer as our guest. Jeff's latest novel is the critically acclaimed eco-thriller Hummingbird Salamander. His novel Annihilation won the Shirley Jackson Award and the Nebula Award, in addition to being made into a movie from Paramount Pictures. AMC has optioned his novel Born for development as a TV series, and a British filmmaker recently made short films out of three stories from his collection Secret Lives. Nonfiction by Vandermeer has appeared in the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, and the Atlantic Online, among others. Vandermeer has been published since he was a teenager, and his books have been translated into 37 languages. He has spoken at the Guggenheim, the Library of Congress, MIT, and the Yale Writers Conference, to name just a few. And now added to that illustrious list is this new online MFA word for word event. Uh, Vandermeer lives in Tallahassee, Florida with his wife, Anne, an award-winning editor. Rewilding efforts in his yard have been featured in international media, including a forthcoming German documentary and can be seen on Twitter if you follow his uh, Twitter account. Uh, currently, Vandermeer is working on more novels and an illustrated book on rewilding. Uh, Jeff, welcome and thank you so much for reading for us tonight. Oh, sure, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Paul. And it's a pleasure to, to see you again. Um, my, my latest novel, which I am not going to read from, <laughs> is indeed Hummingbird uh, Salamander. I, I assume I'm, I'm on the main screen now. And, um, uh, uh, you know, it, 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 it does employ a, a narrative uh, hook that, that, uh, that seems like there's nothing uh, really behind it. Assume I'm dead by the time you read this. In theory, there's nothing else to say, but the novel goes on for another 90,000 words. <laughs> Uh, mayhem. So um, uh, please do check it out if you haven't. Um, but I'm going to be, do something a little startling and, and read from something in progress. Uh, I'm still kind of seeing other people on on, on the large screen right now, just so you know. Um, so um, uh, that's a little, just a tad distracting. Um, okay. The sound I, is in a, yeah. I, Okay, now I'm saying no one because I'm still in a tiny little box, but I'm assuming I'm in the large screen, so that's fine. Um, so the Stone Shed is the first in a series I'm calling the Architect uh, Sequence, and the first book is set in in North Florida um, because I'm I'm lazy. That's where I live. Uh, the main character Sam uh, goes to live in the house her father, a petty thief who was in and out of prison, has left her after his death uh, during a pandemic following her messy divorce in part messy because she shot her husband's mistress in the leg. Uh, that's a long story that's not part of the excerpt I'm going to read. So she's looking for a fair amount of anonymity and instead she finds mysteries. Arthur Bream, the architect who built her father's house in the late 70s on the edge of a little ravine, uh, much like our ravine, again, because I'm, I'm lazy, wanted to create a kind of environmental commune of similar houses. But following a disastrous fire and traumatizing event down in the ravine during which his daughter disappeared, Breen became unhinged and convinced his daughter still lived on in the ravine as a ghost. Then eventually Breen himself disappeared. So Sam doesn't know a lot of this when she moves into this house in a place a lot like Tallahassee. But some of the people involved in trying to build the commune still live in houses along the lip of the ravine. 
One is Zamp Peters, a real jerk who has a giant pine tree cut down onto her property. And two, be, right before or before the events of the scene I'll read, Sam is found down in the ravine, locked in some kind of sleepwalking paralysis, his features fixed in a soundless screen. There's also the revelation that her next door neighbor and new gardening buddy, Geraldine, has a secret twin. Geraldine and her twin are trying to pretend for some reason they're only one person. And this is not to mention the strange customs of the neighborhood, which includes Halloween celebrations in the summer, or the burbling baby-like cries of some animal down in the ravine that Sam cannot identify. Sam and her friends jokingly refer to this animal as, or their search for it as, the search for the thing what sound like a baby but ain't no baby, or T-W-S-L-A-B-B-A-N-B, or taking off the T-W-B slabbin, as in the slabbin. So when you hear the words the slabbin, now you know in this scene what that means. So I know, where's the imagination? Uh, sounds a lot like your neighborhood or maybe mine, um, but don't worry, no real neighbors were harmed in the making of this novel. I actually didn't start writing it until none of the characters were anything like my neighbors for fear of legal retribution, um, but also <laughs> for fear of it not being imaginative enough despite my laziness. So in this scene, Sam's somewhat snarky college uh, era friend, Monica, has come to stay with her and they've been invited to the neighbor Geraldine's house uh, for lunch. And one thing you should know, although nothing uncanny happens in this scene, there is deeply weird shit going down in this ravine. And this kind of teases out the edges of that. Geraldine's ranch-style house had a corny woodcut of a bluebird gracing an off-white door. It rattled when they knocked. There was no doorbell. The lunch with Geraldine featured an unexpected guest. Well, unexpected to Sam and Monica, at least. Geraldine had invited her neighbor to the West, a little man with dirty black hair and drawn features. In his neat pressed but worn gray suit, a little too big for him, he attained attenuated, an attenuated look, resembling a child actor aged 40 years overnight. He reeked of a cologne too aggressive for his clothes, and Geraldine volunteered that his name was Edgar, an apologetic edge to her voice, as if she now regretted the impulse that had introduced him to their conversation. Certainly it appeared Edgar had rarely volunteered much of anything, emanating a stoicism that competed with nervous field mouse energy. They sat at a pitted round granite table, tarted up with a cliche red checkered tablecloth, and looked out from Geraldine's semicircular cedar deck at a backyard that was the stage for a centuries slow battle between gigantic live oaks that blotted out the sun. The shade from these monsters made Sam wish for a jacket, and there was in their moss and fern adorned aspect a sense of beast frozen in mid-stride. Any whimsy to distract than consider that Edgar was now surreptitiously picking his nose. Yet even blocking slender finger and hairy nostril, Sam found something ancient and profound held swift. Larger and more awe-inspiring than Zant's commune zeal, or an architect obsessed with ghosts, or especially territorial disputes and weird processions. It's delightful, Monica said, plopping down in one of the large folding chairs 
with a pattern depicting leaping pink dolphins. Yes, it's wonderful, Sam said. Remarkable to be sitting in someone else's house, even if outdoors. A path of concrete tiles with embedded baubles, including marbles, curved through the oaks in a series of switchbacks and down to a pagoda at the bottom of the yard, where the ravine wilderness took over for good. As whimsical was a doorway partway down the slope bisected by the path. The door careened open within the frame and wedged in the weeds was made of copper or painted a copper color with a complex mandala design. A clever concept carefully placed to capture a pool of dappled sunlight that had escaped the oaks. Also in front of them, blocking part of the view, Geraldine and Edgar, whose last name would never be given, although Sam, for some reason, thought it should be Pangborn. He had no internet footprint, she would find later, searching on his address. Sam always felt reticence around a stranger, especially a nose picker, but Monica did not. Is it true you used to be with Zant? She asked Geraldine, once Edgar was socially acceptable again. They were sipping iced teas and waiting for what Geraldine described as the main course. Geraldine gave Monica a stabby look. Why would you say that? Oh, nothing. It's just I met Zant the other day when he left a note for Sam. I forgot, Sam, but I have a note for you. And there was this thing that someone said on next door that made it sound like Monica trailed off as Geraldine's face clouded and a faint readiness rose in her features, changed course. So you were. What was that like? He seems, well, unique, authentic. Sam sat back, double stunned. Of course it wouldn't show up if they'd never married, had no joint legal documents. But which Geraldine had Zant dated? And did he know about the other one? He must, he must not ward in Sam's thoughts. It was gloriously messy, that hushed few seconds before Geraldine's reply, with even Edgar on the edge of his seat, even if just to sip his tea through a straw. I'll bring out lunch now, I think, Geraldine said, rising. Edgar can entertain you while I wait. Her departure had a deliberate quality that felt thought out as if a quick retreat would be a tell. Wait, there's a note from Zant? This detail had almost escaped Sam, but not quite. Tell you later, Monica said, turning to Edgar. So are you next door? You look like you might be. Edgar considered this in a way that appeared superficially wise, or Sam thought later like a former child actor stupefied by a lifetime of drug use, and through a haze said, yes, I am from next door. I live next door right next to Edgar. Sam edited that to next to Geraldine, while Monica frowned with the disappointment that no one wanted to play her harmless games. Poor Monica, so used to big city banter. What line of work are you in, Edgar? Sam hated the question herself, never knew whether to say, what do you do, or what's your career, or do you just stay home and bury gold in your backyard? I used to be in physics, he said, like someone else would say, I used to be in plumbing. Geraldine reappeared with lunch, which consisted of two three-tiered circular trays made of fine silver and filled with a variety of tiny sandwiches with the crust removed, as well as a selection of bite-sized chocolates and other dessert items. Monica gazed upon the approaching vision with a look of vicarious delight, and Sam was happy too. She hadn't known what to expect, but definitely something 
less expensive. As they gawked at this apparition of a higher station in life, Geraldine went back inside and returned with her best china and more real silver in the form of silverware, even though in theory this was all finger food. It's a wonderful spread, Sam managed. To her surprise, she was holding back tears. She had been to so few gatherings the past few years that the signs and signifiers of high culture, of refinement, of the intimation of dressing up in fancy clothes and being part of polite society almost did her in, even though that had never been her scene. Amazing, Monica managed, suppressing a giggle, which irritated Sam, even though she knew on Monica's terms that was the same as Sam trying not to weep. Edgar held down the stoic fort unmoved, which was really the funniest thing, the possibility that the entire pandemic, terse Edgar, had been popping over to Geraldine's for five-star lunches. When Geraldine finally sat, she said, it's from Canada, feeling a need to explain the overkill, perhaps. High tea. It seemed a festive idea. I liked it when I was out there on vacation. Like Halloween in July, Edgar offered with a thin smile, so unexpected that Sam started. It's more than we deserve, Sam said, recovering. I'm afraid if you come over to my house, it's likely just subs from the grocery store. Well, dig in, Geraldine said, as if she'd set a communal food trough in front of them. And they spent what Sam could only describe as a blissful half hour, stuffing their faces silly with hardly a comment, which suited Edgar just fine, but Monica less so. Xanth and I don't speak, Geraldine said, as sated they began to sit back in their chairs. It was a mistake. Or maybe Xanth had found out about the secretive twin. Was the Geraldine who had come out of the kitchen with the food the same one who had gone in? I didn't mean to pry, Monica said, lying. Melody had just told me a little about her problems with Xanth. Sam squirmed, holding onto her chair with both hands. She'd forgotten her real name might make an appearance during Monica's visit. Well, Melody's problems are nothing compared to what mine were, Geraldine replied, staring at Sam in a knowing way. Sam wilted a bit. Geraldine already knew about the shooting incident. Well, maybe that was actually a relief. Pass the sandwich one, Edgar said, grabbing at what lay just beyond his reach. Pass sounded like past, and sandwich sounded sharp like sandwich, which suggested an accent, although she couldn't place it. Monica pushed the sandwich corsair toward him, bunching up the checkered tablecloth. Here you go, Edgar. You look famished, even though for a little man, Edgar had been packing away the sandwiches already. And what is it you do again? Great thing about Monica is when she was around, Sam never had to worry about carrying a conversation that was the constant threat of follow-up. What do I do? Edgar echoed as if he hadn't just encountered the question and said physics 30 minutes ago. Closer scrutiny revealed a homemade aspect to his suit coupled with further old-fashioned virtues like the vest over the blue button-down shirt and the dress shoes with the peculiar patterning. She wondered if maybe the too large suit coupled with his enormous eyes, too big for his face, made him look smaller than he actually was. Profession, living, Sam said, butting in, because Monica could be cruel, too, in how she lingered, and there was that glint in her eye. I fixed things. I used to, as a physicist, back where I was. A quiver to the lips and a watery eye suggested the memory of loss. 
A great handyman around here, Geraldine interjected, pivoting to more iced tea, water, sandwiches. No, I'm completely stuffed, Sam replied. It felt necessary to hold out a hand in a stop position. Monica nodded in an absent way, captivated by Edgar's ongoing distress. Parts of his face had become undone, and Sam feared he would begin to bawl like a baby. Geraldine, too, seemed transfixed, waiting as Edgar stood poised on the edge of some personal precipice. Then he regained himself, stood stiff, abrupt, holding a hidden fox head he had pulled out from under his chair. Monica gasped. The papier-mâché angles gave it the even more startling aspect of a human head on first glance. Late for Halloween, Edgar explained, next phase, and to everyone's surprise, exited stage right toward his own backyard, sprinting through the live oaks and then charging through the underbrush, setting off some of Ger um, Geraldine's uh, wind chimes. And as he faded into the distance, actually leaping over some ob obstacle, he looked ever more like a child as he receded into the wall of green and then was swallowed by it. Was it a comfortable or uncomfortable silence after Edgar had left? Geraldine clearly decided uncomfortable and busied herself with clearing the table and washing up in the kitchen, while Sam, feeling bloated, wished she had a belt she could loosen or something, and stared up at the oaks in a lunch-related trance. Monica burped, a loud and feisty sound. Monica! Avant, Sam Melody, avant! Sam laughed. Avant was their word from college, mocking in a fond way, an English lit teacher's topic transitions. By now in the Sam Monica lexicon, it held multiple meanings. It is beautiful here. Don't you like it? Well, you don't have a creepy open door in your backyard, for one thing. Or live oaks. Likely the vertical build of her house meant live oaks had been cut down to lay the foundation. Some would call it whimsical, that door, but not me, Monica said. And did you see how much trouble Edgar had getting through Geraldine's artisanal crafted security systems? Whimsical too, Sam said, but frowned. Why hadn't that occurred to her? The wind chimes and other objects to art could be considered a rudimentary early warning perimeter, like tin cans strung around trees near a campsite. And why invite Edgar, not exactly a stunning conversationalist? Habit? Honey, I'm not sure there are any in this neighborhood. Just a humble ex-physicist with a whole head fox mask under his chair. Incorrigible. Another thing that Monica had been called in college. The sweet tea was too sweet, but Sam took another step to cover a sudden cloud descending on her thoughts. Strange little man, jury-rigged security. She suppressed the urge to blurt out that there were two Geraldines and a whole circus of neighbors who had violated her privacy with their procession the other day. But if Monica knew, then the whole dying fall of after lunch would become non-subtle double entendres about doppelgangers, and, Mo and Geraldine was too smart not to catch on. But as Geraldine returned to her seat, Monica had moved to more next-door ammo. They say there was a quote-unquote stranger down in the ravine a couple years ago. Geraldine winced. You've got a lot of time on your hands. Really? A stranger? Should I be worried? Just a rumor, Geraldine replied. I'm surprised more people don't explore the ravine using the easement, Sam said. Most of us did that long ago, or even last week, alluding to the procession. Geraldine ignored her. Sometimes new people move in like the family caddy corner from us, but they put in a fence with no gate, so I don't believe they even know what's down here. By us, did they mean 
Did she mean her and her secret twin? Do you know, Monica asked teasingly, what's down there, I mean? Trees, lots of trees. That irritated Sam. Xanth might have activated a territorialism in her she hadn't known existed, but the procession would have been too much anyway. Really though, Geraldine, Sam said, should I expect neighbors tromping onto my property every other week? Dress rehearsal, Geraldine snapped. It's tradition and they stick to the creek bed. They'll be by a couple more times to get right. Get it right, but I doubt you'll even notice them. Get it right, both Monica and Sam said. It's just we take it seriously. The stranger seemed pretty real to some people on next door, Monica said. And you really don't know who that stranger is. You're a little rude, you know, Geraldine said. And turning to Sam, tell your friend she's rude and annoying. And those are her good qualities, Sam said. But the attempt at levity fell flat. Oddly, for Monica, she had now taken offense and Rose pushed her chair back in curtly, was saying something along the lines of thanks for lunch, while her tone conveyed, hope you die of boils, and Geraldine offered no response at all. While the wind chimes sounded in the yard below in a clankerous way, as of alarm, though no threat materialized. This New silence fell undeniably into the category of awkward, elongated over 30 seconds, a minute, forcing Sam to fumble through a card catalog of conversational gambits, finally pulling out something she'd meant to ask Geraldine anyway. Do you believe in ghosts? Sam asked. Alas, too late, blurted out, it felt non sequitur, caveat emptor. But this was her new question, asked of everyone after reading up on Arthur Breen. The architect had believed in ghosts so utterly it had fractured his life into. Some irrational part of Sam believed one night Bream would appear in the trail cam footage, lost and stumbling through a ravine he no longer recognized. Memory is a ghost, Geraldine said, which was almost original, except Sam had read that in a college textbook once, or maybe song lyrics. Ghosts around here? Sure, why not, Geraldine replied, which felt like a way of removing resistance so Sam would fall right through her own question. Somehow the answer released Sam's inner Monica and she thought about the quest and she and Monica referred to as the quest for the slabin. What about the little itty bitty ghost down in the ravine? The one that sounds like a little crawling baby, a tiny elderly baby, a tiny bleating baby. And there she stopped because unbidden, she'd been about to do an extended riff on tiny baby that felt like an unconditional surrender to babble instead of an attempt at levity. And she didn't know Geraldine well enough to indulge in that, or maybe herself either. Foxes, Geraldine said. Foxes, oh really? She'd seen foxes before. They never seemed much like creepy babies making noises while they crawled around the ravine. Their mighty yip, but never burble, gurgle, gargle. Bobcat, Geraldine said, like someone pulling a con, like they were playing the game of war, and Bobcat trumped both fox and crying babies somehow. Yes, that must be it. She doubted Bobcat as a word that roamed much in suburban ravines. But be my guest, Geraldine said. Be my guest, staring out at the open door, a pinched look on her face. What do you mean? If you want to think it's a ghost, I never took you for irrational. As if they had a long history between them instead of a few afternoons of pulling out weeds together. She tried out saying, my old friend Geraldine, in her head, and it didn't quite scan. 
but she had been reading Bream, or rather, yes, quotes from Bream, painfully reassembled, and had gotten stuck on him and ghosts. The way his belief in them was unshakable in a way that struck her as comfortable, that somehow believing in ghosts made him feel secure, and still, too, Monica's sense of mischief the channel. Do you think Bream ever heard the dead baby calling? It's not a baby. It's not a dead baby. The rage in Geraldine's voice and the way she rose, her chair shoved back, her glass overturned and iced tea pouring onto the tile with Geraldine making no move to stop it. This made Sam ashamed. I'm sorry, Sam said in a small, soft voice, and she meant it. The over-familiarity lay with her, the outsider made manifest all the tangled workings of a long history she didn't know and might have no right to know. You damn well better be, Geraldine said and wiped her brow. And there must have been dirt or something on that hand because it left a sooty mark. You damn well better be sorry. And yet even marked like that and snarling at Sam, something in the gaze was turned inward. I just like to know what's out there in the dark. Or, she thought, be the thing creeping around in the dark, that too. To just be the sleeper was such a wasted opportunity. Geraldine sighed like Sam with some burden, some sack full of potatoes that she decided to drop. You're just like your father, Geraldine said. A thief? Absent? An enigma? Dead? And just like that, lunch was over. Thank you. Oh, jeez. It's already dark here. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Mm-hmm. Um, I went a little long. I apologize for that. No, that's fine. That's fine. I was I was uh, enraptured by it. Um, there was a kind of uh, w- wonderful air of genteel and whimsical malice and menace <laughs> to that to that little garden party. Um, it kind of reminded me a little bit of like uh, Little Big, and I oh, thought really? to myself. As as I was listening to it, I thought, wait, is is uh, Jeff writing a fairy tale now? Is that is that what's next for for you? So what what is this new direction, or is it a new direction in your writing? Um, I don't think it's um, um you know it's funny. It's just um maybe a difference in proportion, uh, and I think Hummingbird Salamander was in a way a step in that direction. You know, even the Southern Reach, which is seen as very uncanny and and strange, you know, 90% of it is is very, you know, reality-based scenes of people in like secret, secret, uh, the secret Southern Reach trying to deal with bureaucracy or or out on expeditions dealing with wildlife. So I'm used to writing scenes that are are very realistic, but this is giving me an opportunity to do scenes I haven't necessarily done before, like a, like a lunch scene that's actually kind of full of menace um, and that's disguising a lot of things and. What I love about this novel is that this guy Bream kind of is the 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 catalyst in the backdrop, even dead, uh, for everything that begins to happen. And what happened down in the ravine in nineteen in the nineteen seventies, where he lost his daughter, and where one of his uh, two buildings, two houses that he built, burns down. Um, kind of the the entire series of novels kind of telescopes out from that. So Sam has probably the least information going into the situation where she doesn't even really know what her father's role was because her father always kept her at arm's length. And and she thought it was just basically because he was a thief and a drug addict, but there's there's other reasons. In fact, there's a good reason why he was a drug addict. Um, and it has something to do with the house. So um, 
so there's this 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 aspect of that I was really excited about of kind of foregrounding a place I'm really familiar with, like I did with Annihilation, but in a totally different kind of social cultural construct of this this environmental commune that failed and the ripples out from that and why it failed, what's actually going down in the ravine. And, and like I said, this will actually kind of telescope out over somewhere between three to seven novels, which I'm really excited. Wow. Wow. Do you do you feel like because uh, another question I often have is I as I become uh, as as you put out another novel and I read it and mm-hmm. I kind of try to fit them together, even if they're not explicitly mm-hmm. part mm-hmm. of the same series. And so mm-hmm. this is is giving me uh, or making me wonder, uh, do, do you see it all as part of a, of a single interconnected world that you're creating everything from ambergris the those early novels to to wherever this new series is going um i don't really see it that way but i would say the fact that um like the born series more or less deals with kind of like alternate realities or a multiverse kind of sets you up for thinking everything can fit in a corner of it Um, yeah but no i I think that this is a, a very different situation um and even like even structurally, um, because the thing about like the Southern Reach is it's, it's going to complete the character arc, but it's about something that's so unknown that it's never going to complete the story arc because no one right. can ever discover fully everything that's going on. This series has me excited because there is that opportunity <laughs> and both the story and the character arcs will be um, uh, completed. And that, that makes me uh, excited because it's a different kind of experience for me, even as it's dealing with a lot of the same uncanny elements. I would say that it feels familiar in the sense of dealing with the uncanny, but I'm dealing with it through architecture, through, um, you know, things like that, through through this layering of different elements of society and culture, starting with this environmental commune. So each novel also has a different perspective, like the second one's set at a, a creative workshop founded by Bream uh, when he left uh, the ravine. Uh, and features some of the minor characters from the, the Stone Shed, this first novel, as major characters. And then the third one is uh, surveillance uh, set up by a CIA-like organization on another house Bream built. And that gives you a different perspective on what, what was going on in the ravine, but also it's not set there. It's set in a, in a totally different setting. So um, the workshop one, oddly enough, uh, allows me to bring in the uncanny of the subprime uh, mortgage crisis. <laughs> <laughs> and the surveillance one, of course, the surveillance state. So um, it's adding all these layers, even as it's, it's, it's bringing you closer to, um, you know, to, to the mysteries, uh, different layers of the mysteries of what happens in the first novel. Um, yeah, so I'm really quite excited about where this is, is going. And, and I, I sometimes I have to stop. I can't tell my wife, Anne, I want her, I want to tell her the whole plot because I'm at this moment just uh, so uh, happy to myself with myself which is probably a bad sign but i'm just so happy because i feel like it's something i haven't seen done before and i don't think i've seen it done at this scale and that's all i can say okay i mean what one one thing that's amazing to me in listening to you talk about it and i mean your enthusiasm is fantastic and i i'm gonna say that's a good sign not a bad sign but um but uh I mean, obviously, you ha- you know the plot. You've got a seven novel series. You know what the plot is going to be. To what extent do you do you outline your work beforehand? Is this typical for for you, or is this a, something that that is that is new for this particular group of books? 
you know, every novel, novel, and then every the overarching arc for series when they are series is different for me. Um, you know, Born was going to be a standalone, but there were things I left there as symbolic images, more or less, that then teased teased at me, and that I had to know what they meant. Uh, so those, that became a three book series, and that, that's how that occurred. Um, with the Southern Reach, I thought it was going to be like uh, four or five novels, and it collapsed into three, which was good because there wasn't really enough story for, for four or five. So that was a good sign. Here, I imagine when I think of seven, it really probably will collapse into something like five. But mm -hmm. um, but it's not so much knowing the plot; it's so much it's so much as knowing what it opens up into. But that's different than the street level view of all the scenes and what the character perspectives are. And, so do those um, do those develop more organically as you're writing? Yes. And and then the actual like the revelations and whatnot may change to to some degree. Um, but, you know, I, again, I, it's hard to talk about, but the central thing that's hidden um, is is. Uh, Let's just put this way. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna put it in a locked box and probably put it in a bank somewhere while I'm, and never talk about it publicly because it's uh, it's uh, again I think it's a real doozy and um, okay and, uh, and 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 so it's not the plot it's this this it really is more of an image uh, without giving okay. too much away and, and with that image in my head uh, everything else kind of unfolds from it. That's very cool. So, um, I mean, this, this this kind of brings me back to a question that I had wanted to ask, and then I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to ask Jeff this question or not, but but now I think I will. Um, it has to do with recurring uh, images, not even so much themes in your book. I mean, I guess the images have like a thematic aspect to them, but they're almost like in an archetypal way, like a tower or like mm -hmm. uh a, the opposite of a tower, a, a, a pit or a cave or a tunnel or something like that. And I find that these uh, recur in a lot of your work, but there are writers who repeat images because that's all they got. You know, they repeat the same Im images because they're already out of ideas. But f with you, it's different. I feel that you're that all of these images are kind of like a Rubik's Cube and you're trying to rearrange them in maybe not even the right way, but just in like different ways. And that's kind of a challenge that you set yourself. Well, I think the images are just simply um, one aspect uh, of, of of each novel, and each novel is very different structurally and is very different because I really truly believe in following the viewpoint character. So you're not going to, in theory, see anything that the viewpoint character wouldn't notice, for example, whether it's third person or first person. Um, what I will say is that I am definitely drawn to what you might call subterranean settings, um, and there are mm -hmm. often subterranean settings in my work. Um, but it's very different things, and um, and I don't actually think when when someone does repeat themselves that it's necessarily a bad thing. Like I think Jonathan Carroll, at least for a while, got into this habit of unreliable narrators and a twist at the end, and I I really didn't mind that. I just thought that was the thing he he did. Um, whereas I feel like it's it's more just that there are some resonant images or symbols that may appear in my work, but that doesn't actually define the structure of the work or the characters. Um. Uh, let me let me switch gears a little bit and and uh, to to uh, our audience uh, we'll be opening the chat and or we'll be mining the chat for questions to ask Jeff. So if you if you have questions for him, please feel free to add them into the chat. Just type them 
uh, Jacob will will kind of mine uh, them out. We'll try to get to as many of many of them as the, as we can. Um, meanwhile, the question I want to ask you is: I saw this article in the Guardian the other day, and I know you saw it as well, which was about the language that that uh, that fungi use to communicate mm-hmm. with each other. And I, I read this article, and I immediately thought of you, and I thought of the ambergris books, which are so much about fungi mm-hmm. and mushrooms and weird methods of communication and everything. And it occurred to me that, you know, when people hear your name and think about your books, they think of dark fantasy, they think of horror, but but there's also kind of an element of science um, in, in your novels. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, um, and first of all, I, 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 I don't mind that I was sent that article by like 500 people. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, at least I didn't send it to you. I thought I didn't send it. I actually kind of am am, am flattered about that. But, um, yeah, I mean, this is the question I primarily get, especially about, like, the Ambergris books and stuff, is, like, just just how much were you influenced by X, Y, and Z author? And in actual fact, the books were really pretty heavily influenced by by researching... uh, as, as you say, mushrooms uh, and, and all that, and uh, and and so narrative actually sometimes comes out of that, and, and I'm actually fairly proud of the the mushroom technology in the books because it actually kind of mirrors stuff that scientists are working with now. It's it's a it's a weird kind of speculation <laughs> that you don't get yeah. much credit for, um, as opposed to like in physics or something if you're a science fiction writer, but. Um, but yeah, so you know, it's um, it's I've always been interested in weird science. My dad's a, an entomologist, and uh, I've always been surrounded by a science lab when I was growing up. And, and and my mom was a biological illustrator until computers took that that job away. And uh, and so you know, I've always kind of lived in that world as well. I just don't. I'm not a big fan of like uh, dumping the science in there. <laughs> the science right. has got to reflect character. It's got to reflect things. Kind of be in the background doing its work that way. Or, or like Edgar, the physicist who, who is a physicist, yeah, but he, I, I have Edgar, my suspicions. He, Edgar is not at all what he seems, and Edgar <laughs> appears in the second novel in a very different context. I'm very happy about it. Anyway, <laughs> um, let me let me ask you another question here, uh, which is about um, the nature of, of speculative fiction, and I, I think this is a, a question that our students will be interested in uh, as well. Um, you know, a lot of people consider speculative fiction to be kind of an escape from reality. Your fiction, um, whatever its fantastical elements, seems like the very opposite of that. You're engaging with reality. You're you're um, you're uh, dealing with um, important uh, questions that are that are uh, paramount uh, in our politics, in our in our uh, society, our culture, our very survival as a species on this planet and the survival of other species on this planet. So what what do you think is the obligation uh, of, of speculative fiction writers or maybe even of any writers to explore these kinds of subjects today in in writing, in writing fictions? Well, I mean, the closer we've gotten to being in the middle of the climate crisis, and you could argue we've actually been in it for a while, uh, the more I think that 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 it that I, I get a little nervous if I don't see it at least in the backdrop <laughs> of uh, of even contemporary fiction. And I think it's absolutely um, uh, something that 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 we need 
we need as many different kinds of minds to grapple with as, as possible. Um, but I don't think there's an obligation by a writer. I mean, every writer is different. And I can think of writers that, you know, maybe are ill-suited to grapple with it. But I also don't think that it's just the, the domain of, of uh, speculative writing. Uh, even Hummingbird Salamander is arguably set in our in our present, maybe slightly 10 seconds into the future, but doesn't really require on the speculative element to comment on climate crisis. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. I, I hate the idea of obligation, but I do as a reader get nervous if, if, if there's not at least something, at least in the backdrop, to mm -hmm. acknowledge that this is beginning to affect everybody. Because that's that signals the writer is is avoiding it or unaware of it? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty obvious to me sometimes when it's the character that is avoiding it or the character right. is oblivious to it. And I think that's also a legitimate thing. Yes. But um, but I but I, I do think um, I do think that there's been more novels than you might think and fiction grappling with it anyway in various ways. Um, and I think that'll that'll just kind of continue. And I think also you'll you, you do see a lot of other media, you know, there's art installations, there's all kinds of, you know, there's poetry, there's all kinds of creators and creations that have nothing to do with the novel that, that are also maybe better suited to make visible or make a point about certain parts of it. So that's the other thing I think about is what can I, what's useful for me to, to, to comment on with regard to climate crisis in my fiction and maybe what's actually not, not, not useful for the media, medium, mm -hmm. you know, so. Um, I'm going to uh, ask ask Jacob to to come on and and uh, uh, filter through some some of our student questions. Sure. Yeah. Um, so we have a couple of actually up front about character. Um, and I think this kind of connects to, I mean, this longer project that you're working on and stuff. Um, and I'll, I'll read both of them together. One of one of them is how do you keep track of these characters over spans of multiple novels um, or mm. like in the Southern Reach trilogy? And the other one is how much do you get to know your characters beforehand before writing them on the page? Or does it kind of come naturally as you write them out? Uh, so the second part uh, first, and then I might have to ask you to repeat the first part of that. Um, you know, I, I, I tend to, as I become more and more ancient uh, to become lazier and lazier in the sense that I um, I think more and more about what I write before I write it. And I've found over time that I can never pick a story too late, but I can definitely write one too early. So um, as a result, I probably know the characters a lot better now than I did when I was first writing because I've really thought them through a lot. I've probably method acted them in the real world, which is something I do a lot now. Um, and uh, try to perceive just in my daily life how the character that I'm writing might see the world or see details I don't see and might be oblivious to details that I see. And it's especially been important as I've become very obsessional about the rewilding because I don't want every character to, to just notice every bird, plant, and flower <laughs> as they're walking along, so to speak. Um, but I also do that with the minor characters. I'm not really satisfied now to start until I've actually, you know, if there's scenes I know I'm going to write, and there's a character who's kind of just a foil to the main character. I ask myself, is there something else I should know about this person? And I try to inhabit their, their lives a little bit, too, before I actually write that scene. And the first part of the question was? 
I, I think you kind of address it. It, it, it was more about mm-hmm. like tracking the complicated relationships oh. between characters through multiple novels and stuff. That really like, depends on the the rest of the structure. So, for example, for a novel like Shriek and Afterward, which is set across 60 years of a fictional fantasy city's history, I literally have to have the map of those historical events and then kind of a map of where the characters' personal lives interact with those historical events to keep track of it. Um, if I'm just dealing in this case with like a bunch of characters in a ravine during a pandemic where they're, they're <laughs> isolated anyway, um, there's not a whole lot that I need, need to worry about. Now I have written parts of the second and third novel in this series already because they're so independent, even though they then interlock in an interesting way. Uh, so I know that those, those pieces will probably change once I finish Stone Shed and the characters will change, uh. Monica was kind of a revelation in in this novel, um, and I like the fact she appears in the second novel uh, in a very different context. And what you don't get to see about a character like Monica in this one scene is that she's an amazingly competent professional in her very high-powered profession, in addition to just having this kind of snarky side. So, um, so that comes into play in the second novel. I know things like that that may not be evident, you know, in certain scenes will come come to play in later on so i like seeing different sides to a character um and that i have to keep track of that i'm not reducing a character to just the one thing they are uh, in, in the writer's mind did you have one set up paul or did you want me yeah to i can I, I can i can grab another one it looked here, like I you think. were it looked like you had one <laughs> ready I did, so i, I was like I did. Um, what do you find it problematic for a writer to focus on delivering emotional and psychological themes to build their story out of, or do you see the best stories as evolving out of, or more naturally building from imagery and characters and setting? I'm not really sure. I understand the question. Um, I don't know the difference between uh, build, you know, writing a character coming out of character and um, psychology of a character necessarily. Um, They're kind of all the, yeah. Yeah, I'm not quite sure of the, of the difference between them. It seems to me that they all are, are interconnected. Um, And we can come back to that one if they want to rephrase it. Yeah. Um, Just because I may be thinking of a different term, a different definition there. What about this is, Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Jacob. Oh, oh no problem. I, I was there was one also about conflict, and you know, like how there is a strong emphasis oh, yeah, that was, in, in yeah in that writing was a Twitter like, subject <laughs> de jour last week, I think. But anyway, sorry. What was the question? Well, yeah, I mean, it's just so so conflict, conflict, conflict. That's kind of what is is driven in writers' workshops and stuff. I, in addition, of course, the character going through that conflict and everything. But like, how how important do you find the actual conflict of the novel itself i mean compared to you know everything surrounding it and stuff like i mean the is the main conflict the driving force of the book or are there other things that writers should keep in mind as they're writing or should they always keep that conflict in the foreground of their mindset and stuff when they're writing these pieces i think it really depends uh on the type of book, like when I was writing Shriek, I had to keep in mind that the main character was basically trying to provide a revisionist history as a counterbalance to what she saw as kind of libel against herself 
but then mm -hmm. also to miss to, to correct things she thought her brother who was in the story in the city had gotten wrong so that's a very complicated and, and yet potentially not very conflict-driven novel uh in a way uh and and so it's kind of like you just keep you just keep it like a central idea that might guide the character in mind if that makes sense uh with hummingbird salamander it's easy because you know once she she gets stuck into this this uh, mystery in a way where you know and, and and we do really live in a surveillance state so so any action you take immediately someone somewhere knows about it um there's nothing she can do but follow this mystery so it's kind of hard for me to lose track of what the central conflict is it's a very different kind of novel here in the stone stone shed thing i can definitely uh lose track because it's so fun for me to write a scene like the one i read that i could let the central idea of the novel or the central events running through it uh, devolve into a series of tactical lunches <laughs> devouring the strategy of the novel uh, just because i really enjoy lunches. monica and sam's interaction too so you know sometimes it's, it's more that you have to be aware of the thing that you're too happy about being able to do uh and and and, and not do too much of it uh, to stay on track um the whole conflict uh conflict on twitter just cracked me up though because i think it was matt johnson uh, the novelist who said about it that we all think different things when we think of these words conflict structure plot there may be definitions in a guidebook a creative writing book but we all have a different idea because we're different writers so for me structure is is kind of what some people think of as plot um i think of a different thing which is scaffolding which is what i need to write the novel that may not actually be the the structure if you diagram the novel but it's, it's a kind of a a, a temporary structure I need to write the novel. Um, there's, there's all kinds of things that, you know, if you actually like really interrogate another writer about what they mean by that, by a very simple word, you may be surprised how different it is from your writer's perspective. So. And conflict could be anything, you know, it doesn't have to be. I've, I've read many an action scene that was the most boring thing on the planet, as opposed to like simply like someone trying to pick up a small stone with the you know chopsticks or something you know to, to start a thing i mean i don't know it could be anything anything can have tension if you do it right you know i i think that's got to be incredibly uh um uh comforting to to many of our students who are who are um you know in in our in our mfa there are there are exercises that must be done there are there are books that must be read then they all talk about structure and and plot and and things like that and to hear from you that that um that all all of these things are not like chiseled in stone but but rather kind of malleable concepts that every writer is going to shape for themselves i think that's that's a very uh sort of liberating idea yeah and the one thing i would do is i would say and and some of these are exercises actually in my wonder book is I do find it very useful with students to give them the plot of a story, maybe two different kinds of stories, one very conflict driven, maybe one less so, but it's still a very you know riveting story. Give them the details of the story and have them write their own version and then compare it to the original, having not seen the original first. And I think sometimes this is also useful to get a sense of what your true strengths and weaknesses are and you can do this other ways as well um, just to kind of inhabit somebody else's pre-made something that gives you kind of a freedom to explore within it uh, can be very useful so 
sometimes I will I've, I've done that myself in the past. Um, sometimes I, I know it's a little different when you're doing it yourself because you're you're doing something from memory of a story you've already read, uh, but it's still right. And I, I mean, you've you've done things I, I've read in that in the past when you were kind of in your in your apprenticeship as a writer, you would take a passage that that appealed to you from a, from another writer and just type it out multiple times and kind of driving the rhythms and whatever underlying kind of structure and logic was in that pa in that passage, like deep into your own bones. Um, and that 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 is very striking to me. Um, because it does, it kind of is another way uh, of of doing what you just said, which is to kind of like inhabit another another writer. Yeah, and I mean everybody everybody learns differently. I learn a lot by mimicry, and so even today, if I'm reading another writer and writing a novel, and I come across a technique that I don't quite understand how it works, or something that I really like as a technique, some bit of craftsmanship or something that I you know admire, I will stick it into the next available spot. In the novel I'm writing, just to see how it works. If I'm going in the flow of a novel and it's going well, that is. <laughs> yeah. So you know, and then, and then I'll probably just it'll just you know go out again. But it, I'll learn a little bit about how it works with the, with that context. So. Um, here's here's a question from uh, Keith Burton. Had you already written Wildlife by the time you decided to turn these characters into a seven novel series? Um. Uh, that's a good question. Is this is this being broadcast to the public after this? I can't remember. <laughs> well, it's uh, I was not broadcast per se, but it's findable. It's locatable. <laughs> um, it's a complicated uh, answer. Um, at some point, I did realize that. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much for pointing that out. I um, <laughs> I uh, at some point I realized that it was going to be something longer, and I had to protect the novel quite a bit uh, in finishing the short story, uh, which is really the only answer I, I have, um, to the point where the short story actually kind of uh, contaminated the novel for a while, and I had to rewrite parts of the novel because they were too close to the short story, and the character in the short story is slightly different, I think, than the character. And it was actually annoying that she was just slightly different as opposed to majorly different, which would make the rewrite much easier. Right. Um, and finally, the tone you kind of heard in this excerpt, is, is, which is, I think, very different from the short story, is more how she comes across. There's a bit more of a kind of a sardonic side to her. I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, and in, I think in wildlife, she's a lot more serious, so completely like one tone serious. So. Good question. Good catch. I should send you a book or something for that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think maybe a good question to to close out the night is uh, that. Oh, okay. You know, I mean, I'm, of, I'm happy to answer a few more unless you all I need to go. So. Oh, yeah. okay. Um, well, it, it, well, in general, this 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 particular uh, guest has asked this question twice, so I think, thought, and it's one that I think a lot of uh, folks on on the call would uh, are seeking as well. What is the most important uh, piece of advice that you have for someone trying to write their first novel or their first book? I know that's a loaded question. <laughs> it's big, <laughs> but we. Well, I mean, you know, I gotta be honest. I, I, um, I started my career before um, social media and kind of the intense lack of privacy writers have, and I don't mean in like the gotcha mentality. I just mean the fact that there's 
you're going to be exposed to so many more opinions about your work, good and bad. Um, and I think that that can be distracting. Um, I did, however, also come up through small press. So I had a lot of scar tissue from bizarre situations that maybe is a, is a com compensatory <laughs> strength. But, um, but I would just say that, you know, guard your creativity to some degree. Um, understand that you have to have some kind of separation between your public life. Very little separation and some people need a lot, um, but not everybody needs the same level. <laughs> so, um, so be very, you know, be, be, be wary of that. You know, even I, you know, I, I post a lot of stuff on social. And I cosplay being a baby raccoon from time to time, which apparently yeah. conveys the superpower that I am a nice person. Um, although I could be a big raccoon who, after midnight, goes over to the neighbors and beats people with baseball bats. Who knows? Um, but because I have this persona, it allows me to be kind of personable and um, seemingly personal. But there is a ton of personal information I would never share. I, I share very little about my family. I share very little about personal events. Uh, if there's any kind of career setbacks, I never share that shit at all. Um, so, uh, so you can kind of choose your level and still be be there. So that's one thing. And then with regard to your personal creativity, I don't know if you've seen, but there are paper shortages so bad that <laughs> my publisher is like, if you don't get me this bonus short story to go with this novel by the end of this month, I can't guarantee we can publish in March of 2023. So. Um, in that context and in the context that everything is so fluid, it's very simple advice, but do not follow trends. Do not give a crap about what anyone else is doing. Do the thing that is most interesting to you or most personal, whatever it is that drives you to write. Uh, and and don't, don't worry about the rest because the rest may not exactly look like it looks now <laughs> when you're finished. Um, and you you want at the end of the day to have something that you feel will last, that reflects you, that you put everything that you are into. Um, and and so uh, you know again, it's simple advice, but I often have beginning writers coming to me and saying, you know, what do you think I should do? Should I do this, that? You know, I see this this person doing that, or this trend's coming up, and it's like just focus on the thing that feels right to you. Uh, I know that's very vague and maybe a little new age-ish, but <laughs> yeah, I think that's super helpful, actually. I mean, and and your own career is a testament to to you know the the um, the utility of that advice. I mean, you you stuck you Jeff book after book. I I feel like all he can't get any weirder. You know, it, it's just not impossible that he could continue to write I about this stuff. Published? Yeah, <laughs> and, grow, and grow his audience, you know, and have bestseller after bestseller. But you you do it. And well, what's I, weird is Dead Astronaut should have been the queer killer, and Dead Astronaut actually <laughs> did pretty well yeah. for an experimental prose poem from the viewpoints of foxes <laughs> and giant fish, um, and with a character who can only really say versions of the word tuck. I won't say the other one he can say. So yeah, so yeah I think I, I've, I've been very, very fortunate in cases obscenely lucky, I guess would be the word. So. Well, I mean, all of the, all of those things are, are no doubt a factor, but also that, that you, that you followed your own advice. Oh. Yeah. And I also, um, I also am, am fairly tough minded and rebound very quickly from 
defeat and horrible tragedy in terms of publishing stuff. Um, so I also would say that it's probably a wise idea, uh, you know, to, 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 if you're writing like short fiction or you're writing in, a, in any kind of context where you can send out a lot of submissions, you know, bloody your nose quickly uh, and, and, and toughen up as quickly as you can and you will have an advantage over a lot of uh, your other writers, even though it's not a competition in any way, shape, right. or form. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jeff Vandermeer, for um, joining us tonight and uh, sharing your wisdom. Um, really, really appreciate it. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff, when is the when is uh, publication scheduled again for the Stone Shed? Uh, well, my editor has to see it and like it first. Uh, I've uh, I decided with this one not to be under contract. So, oh, interesting. My theory is that it would probably come out in 2024, which would make okay. Sense, so that took the time to write. Uh, the second two at least. So. Well, uh, everybody, uh, Jacob just just uh, typed in uh, the uh, URL for Jeff's website, and I'm sure that there'll be uh, any announcements forthcoming there, and you can read uh, more about him and his uh, his works and awards. Um, I I recommend his his work highly. Shriek and afterward remains one of my favorite uh, fantasies of the last uh, 20 years. Oh, thanks. That's so, a great time. Yeah. So uh, thanks again, everybody. I'm going to uh, stop the recording and we'll see you next time. All right. Take care. Thanks.